Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening was ordained a priest in 1991 for the Diocese of Peoria, Illinois. He received his undergraduate degree in physics from the United States Naval Academy, elected a Rhodes Scholar in 1981. He entered the Catholic Church while studying at Oxford. He has multiple advanced degrees from Oxford and Mount St. Mary's Seminary, and his licentiate and doctorate in sacred theology from the Pontifical Lateran University. Currently, he serves as Vice President for Catholic Identity and Mission and holds the Archbishop Flynn Chair of Christian Ethics at Mount St. Mary University in Emmitsburg, Maryland. He also serves as Executive Director of the Center for Advancement of Catholic Higher Education and the Executive Secretary for the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. He was named a Prelate of Honor in 2000 by Blessed John Paul II. He hosts the weekly television show Catholicism on Campus on EWTN and co-hosts the show Go Ask Your Father on Relevant Radio and in his spare time gives talks for the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Monsignor Stuart Swetler. Thank you. So good to be with you this evening. I probably said this last time I was here, uh, but um, you know, as you get old, these introductions sound more and more like an obituary. <laughs> I was ready for he has survived by. Uh, <laughs> we were just so eloquently placed in the presence of God and everything tonight that I uh, am going to say, I hope, is uh, reflecting the spirit of the Father who loves us all as his adopted sons and daughters. Anytime one is asked to speak about uh, one's own life and one's conversion to faith, one always is aware of the mystery of grace. And one is also aware of the admonition in Scripture who will always be ready to give the reason for the hope that is within you. Uh, but before I do that, I want to place that in context, you all know, I'm sure. Uh, and for those who have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to join with me in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. That's where that quotation is from, verse 15. I'm going to try to put that in context. So good to see so many of you have your Bibles, by the way. 1 Peter uh, three fifteen. The second part is always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. The context of the phrase, better known and I think better translated as always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you, the context is that we do this with reverence, especially reverence for those who might disagree with us. 
And tonight I'm going to speak why I came into full communion with the Catholic Church, why I left the historical church of my baptism, the Missouri Senate Lutheran Church. But I do so not to disparage the Lutheran Church. There are many, many, many saints in the Missouri Senate Lutheran Church. Matter of fact, I'll give you a little hint. They spoke prophetically when I was a child because they canonized John the 23rd well before we got around to doing it. Right in my hymnal growing up, the first time I ever read the name John the 23rd was in the list of saints in the Missouri Senate, uh, a little index in the back. We didn't do a whole lot with those saints, but they were there in the back of the hymnal for all those who had eyes to see. I have great reverence for that tradition, especially because I received the saving waters of baptism in that tradition. If you've ever gone into Missouri Senate Lutheran Church, they keep a vigil lamp in their church like we do. They don't believe in the abiding real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, which is a good thing because in their communion service, he doesn't abide. They do put a vigil candle over the baptismal font, uh, showing great reverence for the, the fact of that saving sacrament, which, uh, of course, they minister to babies. And so I received my baptism a few days after my birth in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, in the Lutheran tradition. But I have great reverence for that community. The second point uh, today, before I get into the story of my conversion and my faith journey, is that this says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. That doesn't just say, you priests, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. It doesn't say, those who have practice, or those who have got degrees, or those who are used to speaking in public. This is one of those moral instructions given to all men and women of faith, especially you parents and grandparents, to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within you to your children and grandchildren is an ongoing witness. And I thank God my parents are past now, but I thank God every day for the saintly and sometimes heroic witness to faith of my mom and dad, who never ceased giving witness to the faith even on their deathbed to their children, I being their youngest, most in need of it. We must always be ready to give a reason for our hope. I, as I have already alluded, was brought up in a very pious Christian family. My parents were Lutheran, though my dad came from a Methodist background. If you go up to Northeast Pennsylvania, uh, if you go to Wyoming Seminary, which used to be a Methodist seminary, there's a Swetland Hall. That's one of my great-great-grandfathers who was a Methodist minister. The whole area, most of the little cities have a, or towns have a Swetland Street because Luke Swetland, my direct descendant by eight generations, uh, founded that part of Pennsylvania. I say he founded it because he was the only one to survive an Indian massacre, um, probably because he was cantankerous and off a little bit from everybody else. That's at least my read of the situation. But uh, it was, uh, my, my, so my dad's side of the family was Methodist, but my mom's side was Lutheran. My grandfather on my mom's side came from Germany and uh, was, uh, you know, Lutheran, very, very strong in keeping Lutheranism in the family. So when my mom and dad married, they usually worshipped together in the Lutheran tradition. And that was easy when they lived in Pittsburgh. I'm the youngest, as I said, of three, and when I was three years old, they decided Pittsburgh wasn't the greatest place to bring up kids at the time. And so they moved to where 
They used to vacation. Matter of fact, where they honeymooned in the Pocono Mountains, northeast Pennsylvania. And there it became a little bit more difficult to always find a Lutheran church. Matter of fact, where we lived in the roaring metropolis, Mahopany, Pennsylvania, population 563, the, uh, yeah, you remember hee-haw too, right? Um, there was no Lutheran church. The closest one was about 40 miles away. So at different times, we went to different churches. We went a little bit to the Methodist church that my dad knew and one of his, his ancestors had been minister at. And uh, at times, uh, we went to a Baptist church in the north. And my parents, when they couldn't go to the Lutheran church, it was very simple for them how to choose a Protestant church to go to. One that preached the word. In that sense, my parents were very evangelical. When I became about oh, 12, 13 in that range, the children decided it was good for us to decide where we were going to be once and for all. And there was a Lutheran community starting to form in a little town that we had moved to when I was nine called Tunkhannock, Pennsylvania, actually the county seat of Wyoming County. I'm sure you've all heard of it. Uh, you know, one move there. Brochures will be given out afterwards. Um, but uh, there was a little Lutheran community starting, and so it was perfect timing. It was a chance for us to, to, to sort of settle on a, on a faith home again uh, for us all. And it was a chance for us to be part of founding a community. Now, how strictly German Lutheran this parish was, was one of the first and most important votes in the early parish founding was uh, were the services to be in German or in English. And that vote, if I remember right, was 2221 for English. And my family had five votes, and we all voted English. So uh, it was that close. <laughs> but the point is, this is a very traditional community. And we got a very traditional Lutheran pastor. Only years later do I, I come to realize that he was very steeped in the 20th century evangelical Protestant tradition of people like Karl Barth in his preaching. He preached the utter gratuity of the Word made flesh. And it was a powerful, powerful witness to the Word. And that community grew to about 300 families during the time I was in high school. And my brother and I and my sister and my family, that's where we went. We were at home. That faith community was alive in Christ and it brought us up well. I served like any boy at the time would have served. I was involved in Sunday school. My parents were very strict. We always went to church on Sunday, of course, but we also usually went on Wednesday night. And sometimes if there was a special series going on, we went on Sunday night. I remember well the, the homily about how Thomas missed the Lord because he missed Sunday night meeting um, <laughs> as an admonition to us to make sure we attended the Sunday night services. And so uh, that, that's the closest you get in the Protestant world really to daily communion is the idea of the frequent, you know, the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday routine of faith. My family wasn't just somewhat believers. They were strong believers. And they witnessed to that by the way they lived their lives. My mom believed very much that she was called by vocation to do what God was calling her to do, which meant when the kids were young, it meant being a full-time mom. When I went away to school, she reprayed and decided God was calling her to be a teacher, the last thing in the world she wanted to do. But she happened to be very, very good at it. And so she became a teacher, went back to school, became a teacher. Matter of fact, her first year teaching was fifth grade because I had her as fifth grade math teacher. <laughs> Terrible thing to have happen, but I did. She was a great teacher. It's just I was a pain in her, you know what. Um, 
And she showed me what it meant to pray for a vocation. And to follow that, even if it wasn't necessarily what you might choose for yourself. My dad, I watched leave, he was always a salesman, and I watched my dad leave a very high-paying sales job where he had built up several large commissions because he could not in good faith continue to work for a company that wasn't providing the best products and wasn't acting fully ethically in the business world. And he gave up what was then a very large salary and never, ever came close to that salary again. Matter of fact, if it wasn't for my mom's salary at the time, we would have been hurting. But he said to me as a young boy, as he said to my brother and I, he said, one of the reasons God gave us beards as men is so that we at least look in the mirror once a day. And when you're looking in the mirror while you're shaving, you ought to be able to be proud, not necessarily of your looks, you're not much you can do about that, but that you are living uprightly. I saw my parents live their faith. And my brother and I decided in 1977, the same year, he's a couple years older than I, uh, in the same year that I graduated from high school, I decided to go into the military. I went to the Naval Academy, as you heard. And my brother enlisted in the Air Force. And that little parish of St. Paul's in Tunkhannock, we had a big ceremony to send us off. They blessed us. They prayed the prayer of blessing over us to send us forth. The homily, I'll remember it, the sermon, as Lutherans call it, was about serving the city of man. Good Lutheran idea, of course, drawn from Augustine that while we serve the city of God, we also serve the city of man. And how important the military was in defending our nation, especially in the mid-70s at the height of the Cold War and in the midst of a cultural revolution where many values were up for grabs. And then I went to Annapolis. And I got there as an 18-year-old, and I really wanted to live my faith as a young midshipman, and we had a new liberty that we could do at the Naval Academy. We could go out in town for chapel. Up to a few years before I got to the academy, they used to march you to chapel. And, you know, Catholics went to the Catholic Mass, Protestants went to the Protestant service. They had Jewish services. Uh, that's about all we had back then in the academy. But it, you were marched there, but they had stopped that. I think 1974, I think, was the last year they did that. And by 77, when I got there, they were letting midshipmen, even plebes like myself, that's what they call a freshman, to go out in town to go to worship. And so I looked for the closest Lutheran church. Of course, I was young and somewhat theologically naive. Well, not somewhat, completely theologically naive. So I just went, Lutheran was Lutheran was Lutheran. Ah, little did I know. Of course, it's not that way in Catholic church. It's always the same in every parish, right? It's always the same. Everyone, go. no. Well, the church I happened to go to, the one that was closest, at least by the way I figured it, to the yard at the academy, turned out to be, not only was it not Missouri Senate, it was another Senate, but it turned out to be, had been radically involved in the anti-war movement. And it considered itself a quote-unquote peace church. Now, I showed up, of course, as all plebes had to, in uniform. And I wasn't really received with open arms, I'll be honest. No one would talk to me the first week. And I said, okay, I'll shower better next week. And I came back a second week, and same thing happened. By the third week, finally someone was at least nice enough to come up and said, you probably haven't felt very welcome here, have you? And I said, to be honest with you, no. And they said, well, it's the uniform. We've, uh, you know, we're a peace church, and we're not very happy that you're here wearing that uniform. Now, I was 18, 
I was young, I was foolish. Naval Academy is a tough gig. I still believed, but I was very disillusioned with my Lutheran community. How could a few weeks ago up in Tonkinic, Pennsylvania, St. Paul's Lutheran Church hold a special service to bless my brother and I as we went out into the military to serve the city of man under the grace given to us by the God who is, and then get to another Lutheran church who didn't want me if I was going to wear my uniform, which I had to wear, which meant they didn't want me. Same Bible, same church, I thought, same teachings. And it was just the kind of thing that an 18-year-old needs to quit practicing faith. You don't need much when you're 18 and you're away from home for the first time to disillusion you. So second point, first point, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Second point, watch carefully as a community, as a family, as relatives, as friends, for those who go away to colleges. I don't care if it's a Catholic college, a secular college, a college of another religious tradition. Watch them carefully because that is such a precious time of faith. Between 18 and 25, most young people will make the most important decisions of their lives. They'll make and own the faith that they were brought up in as their own for the rest of their lives, or they'll reject it. They will make it their own as an adult. They'll make adult faith decisions. They will probably meet the most significant people in their lives as far as friendships and maybe even their future spouse. They will probably make decisions about their vocation that will play themselves out through space and time, but will heavily impact how it is they serve God going forward, if they serve God going forward. And the list can go on and on. That period is so precious, but quite frankly, the churches, even our church, are dismal failures at ministering to that age group. For years and years and years, quite frankly, the Catholic Church just pretended that we'll get them back when they marry and start having kids. It was like we had almost uh, adopted the Amish idea of having a year of wilding, except our year of wilding was a decade of wilding before they came back. Newman ministry often is not given the focus it should at secular and non-Catholic colleges. Now, I say this as someone who spent most of my priesthood doing Newman work before I went to Mount St. Mary's, so I, I've got a, a little skin in this game. And I work now at Catholic colleges and universities, which uh, need a lot of your prayerful support because it's so vital to the future of the church. But at 18, when I stopped basically practicing faith, there wasn't someone there to conjole me otherwise. And of course, being a coward, I didn't really tell my parents, oh, by the way, I'm not going to church every week. And when I went home, I still, you know, practice while I was home. Fortunately, that reality did not continue forever. It did for most of my time at the Naval Academy, though I, I had moments where I got more excited about the faith. I had a wonderful physics teacher who gave witness to faith in his own life. He tried to show how faith and reason went together. He was an evangelical Protestant and very much believed in the truth of the gospel. And he was a brilliant physicist. And he had very good arguments of showing how the two related, which was helpful to me. It helped keep faith alive for me, though it didn't convert me. I might have been, as I'll say later, convinced but not converted. So that was important. And when I was very fortunate, by the grace of God, to win the scholarship to go to Oxford. Because it was only that scholarship that allowed me to take a time out from my career to study something else and to think 
about why I had left practicing faith. Being a Rhodes Scholar, I was asked when I went to, by the Navy, I was asked when I went to Oxford to, uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans. I thought I might continue to study physics. They said, eh, if we want you to do physics, we'll send you to MIT or Penn State or Cal Berkeley or someplace like that. If you're going to Oxford, study liberal arts. So I did politics, philosophy, and economics over at Oxford. And the very first course I had, the very first professor I had, asked me to read Descartes' Meditations. It's my first philosophy book in graduate school. Now, I came from a fundamentalist background or an evangelical background. Not fundamentalist, that's unfair. I came from an evangelical backwards. I took literature seriously. And Descartes, of course, as you know in the Meditations, challenges the reader to think through everything that he or she believes and go back as far as they can to find grounds for their belief. That leads him, of course, to the famous, you know, I think, therefore I am in epistemology. Now, Descartes gets so much wrong, I recognize now, but God does write straight with crooked lines because even bad philosophy led me towards the truth. Because I asked myself, what do I believe about what I believe and why do I believe it? And I realized when it came to the question of faith, I had just been a coward. I hadn't faced the question. And when it came to the issue that led me away from the church, the ethics of war and peace, I hadn't answered the question either. And so I began to ask myself those fundamental questions. What do you believe? Is there a God? I had never lost faith, by the grace of God, I never lost faith in believing there is a God. Partly as a physics major, it was really hard to see the order, even the order that came out of chaos, that was in the physical world, both on the macroscopic level and at the most fundamental level, and not believe that there was some intelligence behind this. I could never get myself to believe it was sheer chance. As I now say to my students, I believed in the Big Bang, and only years later did I discover the Big Bang theory was developed by a Catholic priest, a Monsignor teaching at Louvain, who had his doctorate in physics, and uh, was good friends of Einstein, and was a great theologian, and he recognized that the data from science was saying exactly what the scripture said. There was something came out of nothing. And I tell people, I believe in the Big Bang, but behind the Big Bang was a Big Banger. <laughs> right? And so I never lost faith in God. So when I was examining what I believed and why I believed it, I started to look at the great religions of the world to try to figure out what the greater than human other might be like. And of course, in the early 80s at Oxford, one of the big things that was going on was a revival in Eastern philosophy and theology, partly because um, there was a new movement to re-embrace Gandhiism. Uh, I think that movie came out about him about that time, and it was, it, that was partly, I'm not sure what was cause and effect, but it was part of, it was the period. And I, I read everything I get my hands on about Gandhi, especially because it was affected the world and peace question. And I started to examine every religion I could get my hands on. I read the Quran. I read, you know, a typical person enthusiastic about faith, wondering what I figured out. You sort of read everything. That's dangerous, too, because <laughs> it can become a muddle. But since I had not lost faith in God, and by the way, and this is my third point for take home, one of the things that kept me connected to God was the old spiritual hymns that I had learned as a kid. I would walk around Oxford, which is a very beautiful place. I'd walk around the Garden of New College, where I lived. It was New College because it was founded in 1379. 
And compared to the other colleges, it was new. Um, and new college, as I walked around the beautiful gardens, that hymn kept coming back, How Great Thou Art. Right? And that, that hymn, I'll be honest with you, was one of the things that kept me connected to faith. Luther knew this. You catechize through music, which is quite frankly why we need to purge our churches of the garbage and puke that is often put over as gym. It's interesting, garbage and puke, GP. Okay, I'll let you make the connection. The reality is we need beautiful music that teaches the truth. And half the hymns we sing nowadays, quite frankly, borderline on the heretical. Right? We do not build the city of God. That's plagianism. You know, it's just bad theology. So good theology should be in our hymns. I didn't mean to be so negative on that, but as I get older, I can get away with this stuff. <laughs> and we don't sing to the mountains and sing to the seas. We're not pagans, right? We invoke the triune God. And we aren't question or creed, right? You know, we aren't rage against the night. You know, this is madness, and it's really corroding young people who hear it and might think it's a catchy tune and not realize what they're saying is heretical or at least not helpful. As I began this examination, God did a wonderful thing. He placed in my life dear, dear friends who lived their faith. Now, if you've ever been to England, there's many things about England that's wonderful, but one of them that isn't so wonderful is the food. You know, there's an old adage in a joke in Europe that uh, heaven is the place where the, the cooks are French and the policemen are English and the engineers are German. And hell is the place where the cooks are English and the engineers are French and the policemen are German. Each, each country has its own genius. And, you know, the English had lost the recipe for ice and they'd lost the recipe for everything else. And so uh, a group of us decided that we wanted to survive and flourish and we wanted to eat decent food. So we found a little dining group that got together several nights a week to eat together. And I was very welcome because I could get duty-free food from the uh, PX up at the Air Force Base. So that made our efforts a little cheaper. And the conceit was we got together and ate a meal, but we stayed the evening together and someone would bring a reading and we'd discuss it. I learned so much from those sessions of just good friends, colleagues, and it just turned out, there were seven of us, counting myself, that of the other six, four were believing Catholics. And they practiced their faith. And they knew their faith. And they lived their faith. Two were daily communicants. Two were just Sunday go-to-mass Catholics, but devout. They were all studying, graduate students at Oxford. They were all studying different areas, but they knew that area very well. But they also knew their faith very well and how they related and so as I was struggling to find answers to the questions that I posed myself or my professors were posing me, they knew where to steer me. Look at this. Read this. Have you thought of this? They never pushed the faith on me. They were smart enough that they had stood there with the Bible and, you know, started preaching at me. I'd run out the door. But they steered me, as only friends can do, knowing the person in the right way to start thinking about things of faith. Now, I was a cantankerous sort, and I learned by the give and take, and so I always argued back with them after I read what they gave me or thought about what they had said, and 
for the life of me, when I, t- when I told them I was going to become a Catholic, they were like floored because they thought I was the most cantankerous evangelical they'd ever met. Because by the time I told them I was becoming Catholic, I'd already come back to the Christian faith. Now, how did that happen? Well, one of the things I was asked to do by the military was start to read ancient texts. It was something on the side of my degree. To read the ancient military text and the classic military text. They wanted me to have a good grounding in military political theory. So they asked me to read all the way back to the Thucydides, up and through Caesar, you know, and up to the modern classics, Clausewitz, Mahan, all of those. And so I was reading all these with Sir Michael Howard, a uh, military historian over at Oxford, who was gracious enough to take me on as an extra student. And as I was reading these ancient texts, I took them pretty much at face value and read them as text. And so one of my friends said, why do you do that with Christian scriptures? It's contemporary to the time you're reading Caesar now. Read it just like you're reading Caesar. And so that's what I did. I went back and reread the scriptures I grew up with, but now not looking at them from the eyes of faith, but just looking at as an ancient Near East text from the turn of the new millennium, the new era, as they call it. Well, make a long story short, that reading was enlightening. Because what jumped out at me is the central claim of New Testament scripture is that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be in a special relationship with the God who is, actually claimed to be co-equal to that God that he called Abba, Father, was betrayed, was tortured, was railroaded in a false and unjust trial, was executed cruelly, died, was buried, and here's the kicker, rose again. That was an amazing claim. No one had ever made the claim of a bodily resurrection in the way the New Testament has made this claim. So I began to say, wait a minute, this seems to be the central claim of Christian faith. Is it true? And I must admit, I remember well the day that I reread, now asking myself these questions, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is probably the earliest written record in the scriptures to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you stand, through which also you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message I proclaim to you unless you have come to believe in vain. For I hand on to you as of first importance what I in turn have received. Now you see how this works. I hand on to you what I myself have received. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, that he had founded, saying, I didn't make this stuff up. I too received the traditio. And I'm handing it on to you, the tradition. That's what the Catholic Church says it does through space and time and hands on what we have received. It's not our message. It's the message we've received from the Lord. For I handed on to you of first importance what I in turn had received. What has he received? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now Paul's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies, because the New Testament is not yet collected at this stage. And that he was buried. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, one born at a time, he also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now, Paul is laying out not only that many, many people had seen the resurrected Lord, but he names names. And if you go and start to research the kind of people Paul is talking about, the first century Christians, what you find out is almost to a person, they die martyrs' deaths for one belief, that they had encountered the risen Lord. Now, this evidence doesn't prove faith, but it sure is a powerful witness. That's what martyr means, witness to the fact that they had a life-transforming experience that they were willing to risk everything for. Paul himself, on the road to Damascus, a man who was zealous to persecute and to stomp out the new way, had this life-transforming experience that led him to become, if you will, the super-apostle, the one who's taking the faith everywhere he can. And as I looked at those lies and I looked at their witness, I said, Could it be that they were all deluded? It would be unprecedented in human history for such delusion. Could it be that they were just faking it? You know, this is a new scam, a new scheme, a way to make money. There's all charlatans coming around playing their theological versions of three-card Monty. Well, going to your martyr's death is not a good endgame if you're trying to get wealthy and famous and have a life of ease. They all suffer terribly. For this truth, it didn't prove faith to me, but it proposed faith to me. You couple that with the witness that I saw in my friends who had something I didn't have. Two things in particular they had that I didn't have. Peace and joy. They had a peace. Later I came to realize it's what Paul's talking about when he says the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. A peace about them. They knew who they were and why they were. They had a confidence about them that told them that they were in right relationship with the God who is. That radiated. But so much so that uh, one of them, the guy who sponsored me in the church, uh, Robbie George, he teaches at Princeton now. He couldn't even make people who hated everything he stood for like him. It is an uncanny ability. I mean, he got tenure at Princeton. Proof of that. You know? <laughs> A believing Catholic, a tenure in the politics department at Princeton. It is a miracle, you know. (laughs) But they had peace. And the other thing they had was great joy. Because they knew the risen Lord. They had all had an experience of the power of the risen Lord in their own life. And that awoke in me what my parents had planted. Parents and grandparents. Plant the seed of faith in your children. I'm going to tell a story that's not about me, but about someone else. When I was bishop secretary back in Peoria, 
I was ordained by Bishop Myers, who's now in Newark. He had just become our bishop, and he didn't have a secretary. He ordained me and made me his secretary. He said, you were in the military. You know how to hold a hat. Uh, so, you know, uh, I had my first couple of years in the priesthood with the bishop, and I got sometimes to see amazing things because of that. And one of them was a lunch I went to. A missionary group, a lay missionary group, was coming into the Diocese of Peoria, and the bishop wanted to meet with them before they started the apostolate in Peoria. And so the lead missionary came. The lead missionary, I set the bishop up, I told him the story. I had a great story. He had been a drug runner. He had been involved in street gangs as a kid. And as a teenager, he had murdered someone and been arrested. It was in jail. He had a great conversion and came out of jail. Fortunately, they didn't try him as an adult. They tried him as a kid because I think he was 14 at the time when he committed the murder. So he didn't get life in prison and he came out on fire for the Lord and became a missionary of the faith. But when the, we went to lunch, the bishop said, I got to hear the story. How did you go from being a, you know, a gangbanger at 11, being a drug dealer at 12, and a murder someone at whatever it was, 14, 15, and now here you are, evangelist? And he said, it was my mom. And he said, my mom was a good Boston Catholic, and she taught her kids the catechism. I was a hellion, and I paid no attention but when I was in that jail cell, it ever, all hell was breaking loose against me. And it looked like my life, as I knew it, was going to be over forever. In that darkness and in that despair, I again heard a word that I could never unhear. My mom had planted that word in my heart, so I had heard as a kid a word I could never unhear. And when I was ready to hear it, it came back to me. When you plant the seed of faith, you are planting in them a word that can never be unheard. And who knows when and who knows how, but it may germinate again, even if they drift, even if they wander, even if they're like the prodigal son from today's gospel. That experience of the germination of the faith my parents had planted in me, the word I couldn't unhear, it came alive and it came alive, to be honest with you, in a, just a tremendous way. At first, I started going back to an evangelical church. Uh, St. Aldate's in Oxford is a kind of evangelical Anglican church. Uh, Canon Green, who was the canon at the time, was sort of like uh, Billy Graham of England. And uh, he preached a powerful kerygma. That got me back on my feet. But I realized really quickly, evangelicalism wasn't enough. Because as I read the scriptures with new eyes, one of the things that popped out to me beyond just the resurrection story was all the sacramental life. That was witnessed to. Like James chapter 5? Let's look at James chapter 5 for a second. I know this gets me in trouble with Lutherans. That's the epistle of straw and all that. But still, it's in the scripture. You know, it's there. Look at James chapter 5. Go to verse 14. Are any among you sick? They should call for the presbyters of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Well, that sounds like a lot like what we call the sacrament of anointing, doesn't it? Now, my Lutheran church believed in the Bible. I was taught that, well, as I would say to now as a Catholic, everything asserted in sacred scripture is asserted by the Holy Spirit and therefore true. But wait a minute. It says right in there that we should anoint the sick with oil. The presbyters should be doing this. Why are we doing that in the Lutheran church? The night that Jesus rose, 
and appeared to the eleven or the ten because Thomas wasn't there, Judas having already committed suicide. And he appears to the ten in the upper room. What's the first thing he does? He shows them by convincing signs that he's alive, shares with them the gift of peace. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit and says, whose sins you forgive are forgiven. Whose sins you hold bound are held bound. Sounds a lot like confession to me. How are we holding bound, forgiving sins and holding bound sins in apostolic succession in the Protestant churches? And as I read the New Testament, it was clear to me that there was a sacramental life. So I started to say, where can I find this? And there was two places to find it. The Catholic church that my friends belong to and the Orthodox churches, Russian, Greek, Antioch, etc., all of which had communities in and around Oxford. So I started to go to visit them. They were fun. Long, but fun. (laughs) You stand a lot. You chant a lot. But you do so in a language that I had no idea what they were doing or saying. Now, I know some people like the Latin Mass. I must admit, I would not be Catholic today if we were still using the Latin Mass. I just wouldn't have never become Catholic, just like I never became Orthodox. I dismiss that as for me. It's good for people who speak ancient Aramaic or the formal Russian and Greek of the Orthodox tradition, right? But I believed you should be able to understand what was going on in the services you were attending. And that, I won't say by default, but that led me very quickly to see that I had to look at the Catholic Church seriously. Now, I was a hard nut to crack. It took three years for me to come into the Catholic Church. And I started to study, and they did the old-fashioned way, one-on-one tutorial, but that's how Oxford does classes, right? So I went on one with Father Rod Strange, who was the Newman chaplain at Oxford, in the house that Monsignor Knox used to own. And I started to read a lot of Monsignor Knox, because I could snag those books off the shelf. But what I was trying to do was to make sure I believed what the church believed. And this is where my friend Dermot Quinn, one of those four in my dining group, who's now a professor at Seton Hall, Irishman, good Irishman, uh, Dermot said to me, you know, Stuart, You could spend from here to eternity, literally, going through all the teachings of the Catholic Church. And if at the end of the day you believe them all, it wouldn't make you Catholic. For Catholics, really, there's one question. Once you believe you have faith in Christ, etc., there's one question more to ask. Do you believe the Catholic Church is who she says she is? She says that she is the church founded by Jesus Christ, inspired with the Holy Spirit, that she is the mystical body of Jesus Christ expended through space and time, carrying on his mission through space and time. If you believe that to be true, you've got to become Catholic. If you don't believe that's true, it would be sinful for you to become Catholic. I believe the church is who she says she is, the bride of Christ. Because Jesus did not come to write a book. As far as we know, the only writing he did was a little doodling in the ground. Jesus did not come to save individuals. Jesus came to form a community, a community of people in friendship with God. And it's that community that he died for and that he rose again for, that he forms and continues to form and inform through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I realized Dermot was right. That was the question before me. I didn't understand. I must admit, the day, it took me three years, but the day I came to the Catholic Church, I didn't understand all the teachings of the church. I have an earned doctorate in theology, an honorary doctorate from another Catholic university. I still don't understand all the teachings of the church. 
Sometimes I just have to say, I feel like Jerome when he was translating Paul. You know, you know the famous story? He's translating Paul and he's got the scrolls there in the cave. And well, it was in Bethlehem that he was translating that. He just finally he just took the scroll and threw it across the cave and said, St. Paul, sometimes you don't want to be understood. <laughs> you know, there are passages of scripture that still baffle me. There's teaching in the church that I don't fully understand. But in everything I do, in everything I say, everything I write, and everything I preach, I defer to the better judgment of the magisterium of the Catholic Church. And that is how a Catholic ought to believe and practice. Because what we believe, as the fathers of the church said, we cannot say we have God as our father unless we have the church as our mother. And thanks be to God, I had a good father and a mother. I know what it means to be a a pious child of a good mom and dad. Mom and dad would never mislead me. Mom and dad would never lie to me. Mom and dad have my best interests at heart and God, our father, will not abandon us. Jesus, our big brother, says, I will be with you even until the end of the earth. If all he left us was the book, then quite frankly, Abba is a deadbeat dad. Because you give this book to 15 scholars and they will give you 20 different interpretations. We know now in modernity that texts are indeterminate. It's one of the things we fight and we fight against postmodernism. You need a teaching authority to faithfully interpret the text for every age, hand it on whole and entire. And if God loves us like a father loves his children, then he will make sure we have the truth when it comes to how to live, morals, how to love, and what to believe. If he doesn't do that, Quite frankly, if God isn't interested in doing that, then to hell with him. Because he doesn't really love us. But I know he loves us with infinite, passionate love, calling each of us to himself by name and asking us to live that out in, with, and through a community that he has formed that is his own. Once I had come to believe that, I had to be Catholic and I couldn't get there quickly enough. But there's one thing more. It's not just icing on the cake because I came to recognize that I was focused on all the teaching. I was focusing on all the belief. And on the sacraments were there, and I thought that was important for practice and belief, but then I came to recognize the centrality of the Eucharist. And it happened by accident. I know that when two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, he's present, because he promised that. As a Lutheran, I believe that there was some special way that Jesus came to us when we did communion service. We called it consubstantiation in the Lutheran traditions. That was interesting, but... As I took those three years to come to the Catholic Church, I started to pray in the chapel, St. Thomas More Chapel at Oxford University, Thomas More being an alum from Oxford. As I prayed there, I came to sense on a spiritual level that Christ was present to me there in a way that was different than every other way I had experienced the presence of Christ ever in my life. And at first, I didn't know why. Because I didn't know, you know, I knew that, well, there's a tabernacle there and everything, but I didn't connect at all. And then when I got around in my instruction to the teaching of the Catholic Church on the real presence in the Eucharist, as Father Strange was telling me this tradition, I was like literally hopping around. I, I know, I'm usually laid back, you can tell. But I was hopping around in my seat because I knew exactly what he was saying. That's what I was experiencing in the chapel. Because Jesus was really present there. 
And I came to believe that not only was really Jesus really present for us to adore and pray to him in the tabernacle, but he wanted to give himself to me so that I may be united with him on every level of my being. He wanted, as the mystics of the church talk about, the church is the bride, Christ is the bridegroom. He laid down his life for us and he wants to come to us, the church, as the bridegroom and he wants to form a one flesh unity with us. And then as Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, John of the Cross talk about that receiving the Eucharist is akin for a Christian. You can make a parallel to the marital act of a sacramentally married couple. You form one flesh with the bridegroom Christ. You come united with him on every level of your being, heart, mind, body, and spirit. And so I became desperately hungry. For the body of Christ, thirsty for his blood. And so I waited, it was very tough, the six months between the moment I had discovered this by the grace of God and being received in at Easter Vigil that year. And the most joy-filled moment of my life was the day I was received in the Catholic Church. I love being a priest. My ordination for me was special. I love being ordained a deacon. I love being ordained a priest. And I pray to God every day that I never get ordained a bishop. Benedict Rochelle is exactly right. The definition of a bishop is a priest with very bad luck. (laughs) My ordinations were extraordinarily powerful and special to me, but they pale in comparison to the day I first received the Eucharist. For you born Catholics, you might not recognize what a gift this is. I remember it so well as if it was yesterday. I was fifth in line. There was a Korean family in front of me who were all being baptized in the faith and uh, they went first and then I was and as I waited in the line for that Korean family to receive the Eucharist first it struck me that for the first time in my life I could say with absolute utter certainty that I was doing exactly at that moment the will of God and that God was giving himself to me in a way I had never experienced before and I gotta tell you wonders of wonders miracles and miracles the joy and the grace of that moment to receive him. But you know, when I say, most often I have a community to say mass with, but even those days, rare that they are, that I say a private mass, and I'm in a little room, maybe even, on a hotel when I'm traveling or something, saying a mass all by myself, when it goes to that moment, when now as a priest I get to elevate the host, but of course the church makes sure that we remember that, to paraphrase Augustine, for you I'm a priest, but with you I'm a Christian, We have to kneel in adoration too. And I actually am able to receive him. Every time I receive him, that joy comes flooding back. And it's never left. All these, how many years have I been Catholic now? 30 years I've been Catholic. This is the source and summit of our faith. And so any of the answers that Chesterton and others gave for coming into the Catholic faith makes sense. You know, Chesterton sometimes when asked why did I become Catholic, he said, to get my sins forgiven. And I can answer that. Yep, I became Catholic to get my sins forgiven. My first confession was on Good Friday before the day I was received in the church on Easter Saturday at the vigil. And it took exactly all day. <laughs> it's true. I went to Father Strange. I had arranged and he said, come in before the Good Friday uh, service. Come in in about an hour before and we'll start. And I prepared very diligently, and after about 45, 48 minutes, he says, we got to go start service. We're going to have to continue this afterwards. So then we had all three hours of service, 
And I finished my sacramental confession, you know, afterwards. So it took me all day to confess my sins, that first confession as a Catholic. You know, so I can answer with question, why did I become Catholic? To get my sins forgiven. Yeah. But ultimately, any Catholic who has experienced the faith knows the answer to why you become Catholic is the church is who she says she is. And it's in, with, and through the church that one receives our Lord sacramentally to be united with him in this life as a foretaste of that perfect union we all long for and that we were made for with him forever in heaven. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. Thank you very much, Monsignor, for a wonderful presentation. Thank you for a wonderful presentation, and also thank you for taking time to be with us this evening. We know your schedule is very busy, and we're very blessed to have you here again at the Institute of Catholic Culture. We hope you'll join us again soon. Finally, I said that I would conclude my remarks that I started earlier, and I wanted to wait for Monsignor to speak to be able to say this, because in the middle of his talk, I knew what he would say, that at that most critical moment, when his eyes were being opened... It wasn't a book he picked up. It was a person he spoke to. He sat down with his close friends in those evening dinner discussions, and he discovered, he rediscovered a relationship with Jesus Christ. Logical arguments don't convert a lot of people. Books don't convert a lot of people. People convert people. And there's a reason for that. God made us to communicate his divine life to others. It's our job. My friends, the problem is that the people aren't going out and talking to other people. In fact, they're not even talking to each other. We have to build up our churches again. We have to be willing to talk with people about the faith that we hold dear. And if we don't do that, then we are not doing what Jesus Christ came to give us the gift to do. He came to give us his life. We are made in his image and likeness to do one thing, and that is communicate that life to others. And if we refuse to do it, we're not Christians and our churches will die and I stood in a church this morning and I've stood in churches in the past that scare me they scare me because I'm afraid for my children and my grandchildren if you want the church to be here 50 years, 100 years from now, it will not remain on its own. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Pope Benedict. It will not remain on its own. We need to be willing to go out to talk to our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, and every single conversation have one objective in mind, and that is to somehow bring Jesus Christ in the midst of that conversation. We'll take a short break for those that can stay around for Q&A. How did your becoming Catholic go down with your Lutheran family? At first, not well. And, and to be honest with you, my sister predated me 
into the Catholic Church. She married into a Catholic family and became Catholic. And to show you how uh, strict my parents were about their Lutheranism, they did not go to their eldest daughter's wedding because it was a Catholic wedding. So you can imagine it, when I became the second of their three children, uh, I'm the youngest, but the second to become Catholic, it did not go well at all. And it continued to be very tense, especially when I resigned my commission to go in the seminary. You know, I joke about this now. I said they were, would wish I would do something more reputable, like be a hitman for the mafia or something. Um, but uh, you know the thing that changed their hearts? They were gracious enough and humble enough to come to my installation as lector, right? And what was said about the faith, always person to person. Then Bishop, later Cardinal Egan, was the, the bishop who installed me as a lector. And he spent his homily talking about what Catholics believe about sacred scripture about the word and my parents came out and said that's what we believe about the word and from that moment on all the opposition went away and I like to I can I can give witness now they're both have passed from this life to the one they became Catholic before they died Thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, I'm always interested, though, as a Lutheran with her scripture readings, you mentioned like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and then the sacramental parts of scripture as well, but were there other parts of scripture that you look at now as Catholic and you look at with fresh eyes, like, wait a minute, I've read that so many times before and all of a sudden there's no meaning to it. My guardian angel asked you to ask that question because I had marked some passages just because I said, someone's going to ask me this. <laughs> and let me, uh, I could go on and on, but I'm going to just do three, and I'll try to do them quickly, okay? Three areas of teaching that I see now with new eyes. First and most importantly, in witness to what I said about the church and the role of the church, I now read 1 Timothy 3.15 and say, how did I not see that before? First and Second Timothy are the books that Lutherans would go to a lot to talk about the importance of Scripture and instructing and in, in informing faith. And so here in 1 Timothy 3.15, you read, If I am delayed, Paul's writing to his disciple Timothy, If I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulk work of the truth. So Scripture itself says it's not Scripture that is the rule of faith. The pillar and bulk of truth is the church. You know, the book doesn't give us the church. The church gives us the book and interprets the book faithfully. And the, and the book itself says that. And I didn't see that. Now, this one Marcus Grodig led me to. Full disclosure, uh, I wrote my conversion story at the request of Pat Madrid. It's in Surprised by Truth 3. Then Marcus had me on the show and, and republished it in his collection, Journey Home. It was through Marcus that, that he pointed out 315 to me. 1 Timothy 3.15, and we started talking about it, and then I read his writings about that, about his own conversion story. And I realized, you know, how did I not see that before? So I didn't see this on my way into the church. I saw it after I was in the church, because we continue, faith seeks understanding. So continue to understand. I'll give you um, one more. Um, I said two more, but I'm going to do one just for sake of time. Since we're in 1 Timothy, if you look at 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end we toil and struggle, because we have our hope set in the living God, who is the Savior of all, especially of those who believe. One of the things that I examined, I didn't talk about in my journey in because it would have taken us too far afield, is that I was struggling to figure out how God worked with non-believers who through no fault of their own did not have explicit faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, the Catholic Church has a very nuanced and very, I think, important teaching about this, that the grace of God, won for us by Jesus on the cross, is offered to every person, away no to God alone. Gamma's Bez 22. That God's calling all men and women into unity with him. And here you have in 4.10, scriptural witness, 1 Timothy 4.10, that it says, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all, especially those who believe. It doesn't say only those who believe. Right? Meaning that some who don't have explicit faith through no fault of their own might be saved. That's how the church handles it. We say we might be. Now, ordinarily, the way we are saved is through explicit faith in Christ and receiving the saving waters of baptism in an explicit external way as a sacramental, not just sign of our conversion, but actually it's efficacious. It creates the adoption. It transforms us. It renews us. It makes us sons and daughters in the Son. But the scriptures themselves point to the fact that some who do not have explicit faith, they too may be saved. So that points to the whole ecumenical interfaith teachings that are a big part of the Second Vatican Council. Lumen Gentium 15 and 16, Gamma Spes 22, etc. It points to that scripturally. So there's two examples. I have more, but we have to go to another question. Monsignor, yes. your conversion story sounds very much like that of Thomas Merton. Were you aware of him before your conversion? No, no I read his conversion stories and his uh, teaching on prayer after I became Catholic. It was an early one I read, and I was very taken with that. He, uh, of course, was in those rarefied communities of literary and uh, high culture in New York City. I was just a lowly naval officer uh, in the backwaters of Oxford. So there's a big difference. I wasn't running around with all the names that he was running around with. Yeah. Though a lot, I have to admit, a lot of my contemporaries over there are now politicians, and I pray for them. <laughs> The other day I was talking with the chaplain at Stone Ridge, which is a formerly Sacred Heart School up in uh, Montgomery County, and mm-hmm. she was struggling with how do you reach the millennials. Mm-hmm. And, and as I was listening, I have some familiarity with Oxford. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, have you ever thought of taking your experience to discussions, the ideas you discuss, as a way of reaching out to the millennials? The one thing we say about the millennials, they're not just one thing. No generation is ever just one thing, but they are the most diverse. Uh, so not everything will work the same with every, the whole group. But you're right, and this is why the outreach that is on college campuses right now, like FOCUS, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, which does that small group discussion, disciple-led, one-on-one, small group interaction, Bible study, the, the evangelization of like-by-like, like, that method is, so uh, I think, so efficacious with the millennial generation. Every generation has their own struggles. For the millennials, the problem for us witnessing to them, old geezers like myself, is, you know, that for very good reason, they feel betrayed by our generation. We've done it to them, folks. Every institution that they might believe in has been corrupted. The church, obvious problems. Politics? We have spent them into crisis. They're looking at our, quite frankly, let's be blunt about those of you, there's some millennials here, but people who are older than millennials, we selfishly spent and slayed the fatted calf and spent the patrimony on ourselves. They have every reason to be angry at it. And what is worse, we killed a third of them through abortion. 
many, many, many of my students are keep trying to prove that they're worthy of choice. They don't even realize the dynamic in their own life that they keep trying to prove to us that they're worth keeping alive. Because subconsciously they know they could have been killed like a sibling was, or like a cousin was, or two or three. We have done this to this generation. Now, it's not their fault, as my rector likes to say. It's not their fault, but it is their problem. So we are not going to be the most efficacious evangelist to them. The ministry of like to like. And that's why our parishes and our colleges and our high schools need to have a lot of peer ministry going on. Because they need to see the faith witnessed. Like I had that good experience at Oxford of having people witness to me. Contemporaries. One of the things about the new evangelization, it's called new because we're trying to figure out new techniques and we haven't gotten there yet. If anybody had gotten a corner on it, they'd be on Oprah and be selling a lot of books. No one has figured it out yet. But I'm convinced it's going to be a lot of pure ministry, like to like. Hi, Father. Thank you for being here. I'm a convert to the faith myself, and I have a lot of family and relatives and, and friends who are uh, evangelical, Protestants of one stripe or another. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions about how to reach out to them or, or ideas. So, you know, I, I try to communicate in different ways. I've written letters and all mm -hmm. sorts of things. But if you have any suggestions or ideas about mm -hmm. reaching out to your non-Catholic friends who are yeah. Protestant. Yeah. First and foremost, the most important witness we give is the joy and peace of our own lives. So that's got to be evident in evangelizing Protestants. Second, it's not about winning arguments. It's about winning souls. So a good Protestant, a good evangelical, they're two-thirds of the way there, if not more, right? And some of them put us to shame when it comes to prayer, devotion, you know, walking, the walk of faith. I have found that the Eucharist, thinking about what the church might be, I'll be honest, one of the things that helped me was one of the things when I was looking at the church could it possibly be what, she says, what the church says she is? One of the things that really impressed me was the pro-life witness of the church. It really impressed me because it was not, the 70s was not, early 80s was not a time when that was very popular. It's not today either, but it wasn't very popular then. And she, the church, stayed firm. Evangelicals are impressed with the fact we stay firm on that. On marriage now, same thing. So to point out that truth. For myself, as a naval officer, I was still looking for the answers about war and peace. And I came across the just war tradition that the Catholic Church is the intellectual authors of that. So to point to how much richness there in the tradition. Then it's very much individual. My friends realized early on that I liked to read and they started steering me in directions. I stumbled by their help into Chesterton and Chesterton just was floored me. I still take great delight in Chesterton. Chesterton led me to Belloc. Knox, of course, became a third. I started reading Graham Greene novels. I all the English converts, because I was in England and it just hit me. But that was very personal to me. I wouldn't recommend Graham Greene novels for everybody coming into the faith. You know, you know unless, you know, his, his conversion story, he says the most miserable day of his life was the day he was received in the Catholic Church. He was a reluctant convert who hated it was true, but knew it was true. And by the way, by the way, uh, Graham Greene, who was a terrible Catholic in his whole life, he admitted it. He allowed his deathbed confession to be public, and not all the details, 
but that the, he was received back into the church, given the last rites, united with the church, and he allowed the priest to say that he had asked forgiveness for not living his life according to the faith. So all's well that ends well, uh, though we pray for his purgation. So, yes. All right, we need to, he's way back there in a different zip code. Um. Didn't Luther do something like that on his deathbed? Not that I know of, to be honest with you, but I'm, I'm not an expert on his history. I won't even say I'm an expert on his theology, though I think I know some of it quite well. I don't know about you, but we used to joke among priests, you know the, those cards you used to always keep or those things you used to wear, I'm a Catholic, call a priest. What does a priest have? He has, we always joke, I'm a priest, call a doctor. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a joke, it's not true. But you know, this is way off topic, but it gives me a chance to get on my bully pulpit here and say, we do need to redevelop an old piety that we lost somewhere. The prayers for a happy death. Especially, you know, now that Joseph is in the the canon, it's a reminder of those devotions to St. Joseph for a happy death. He died in the company of our Lord and and our Lady, like we all should want to. And the reason I know this is not very popular nowadays is... I'm not asked to give the last rites much anymore. I was just asked this question. I, I visit, my godfather's in the hospital right now. Pray for Robbie. He's just getting a surgery. But I was up there, and he's, I you know, brought the oils, of course. And he says, you get to do that much anymore. And I said, I, I carry it in my car because I used to stop at accidents. And I remember when I was a young priest back in the early 90s, the police, you know, we had a special relationship. They said, oh, Father, yeah, come here. I, I remember my first couple of years, I, it was seven times I anointed people at accident scenes. One of them, I remember the guy had had a massive heart attack or stroke, I'm not sure which, as he uh, was driving and then crashed his car, of course. And I thought he was gone, but as soon as I got close to him, he just lit up, grabbed me and said, I need confession. You know, and as we were going into the ambulance, I was giving him everything I could give him. You know, I don't know what happened to him. If he did die, he had the postage paid already. So, um, (laughs) but um, the point is that was so standard. And the fire and the police... The other night, I was, uh, you know, I was stopped in the road on a superhighway because there was a wreck. I was about a quarter mile back. I was not in my clerics. I was in civvies, but I grabbed my oats, grabbed my stole, got out and started as soon as I got close to the police say, I'm a priest. Do you need me? It was a pretty bad wreck. And they ordered me back in my car. That's the difference between now and then, right? And uh, so, you know, we've lost it in our society because, and, and hospitals don't call like they used to. You know, all the new HIPAA laws and everything they're worried about, you know. So make sure, insist when you do what you do, if you're durable power, attorney for healthcare, decision making for people, make sure everybody gets everything the church intends you to have as you pass from this life to the next. The apostolic pardon, the anointing of the sick, absolution, of course, viaticum, food for the journey. All of this should be part of our tradition. We've lost it all. Uh, and that's just laziness on our part, uh, quite frankly. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> Thank you very much, Monsignor. Uh, yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. 
St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.